Hey, thanks for being a part of the conversation. Let's do some pod crashing. Episode number 271 is with Robert Greenfield and Gary Stromberg from the podcast Stones Touring Party. A long, hot summer with the Rolling Stones. Wow, you guys, this podcast is something that the, the future needs because a lot of people who are, oh my God, I love the Rolling Stones. How long have you been listening? Oh, for a couple of years. Well, you guys have a podcast that says, you know what? Let's, let's share a journey with you because you need to know more about these guys that are the Rolling Stones. Well, wow. thank you. Great introduction, Errol. Thank you, man. You, I mean, the subtitle of the book that I wrote about the tour was A Journey Through America with the Rolling Stones. And I think that's what the podcast is as well, a journey through a world that does and does not exist anymore. But you know what's so great about this, guys, is the fact that we get to hear your voice. We get to hear the interviews. We get, I mean, we finally get sound with it because when, when you're reading a book, you get your own interpretation. Now I've get, right. Now I get to hear your emotions. <laughs> well, this is all Gary Stromberg's doing, and so I'm going to say that until the you know until the end, which I hope is not soon. Uh, Gary came up with this idea two and a half years ago. It was all his concept, and in the process of putting this together with the two amazing iHeart producers, who uh, you can hear them on the podcast as well, and uh, great music put together by Noel Brown, insane research by Jordan Runtall, who at one point said to me, Bob, I have 300 pages of notes on STP, the book. And I said, Jordan, the book is not 300 pages. Okay. <laughs> so he knows more about this than anybody. And in the course of putting it together, um, I discovered, because, you know, I don't remember, uh, 60 hours of interviews that I had done right after the tour with everyone from Mick and Keith to the baggage handler. And so your point is well taken. It's not just Gary and I talking. It's these people people right after they had lived through this insane and dangerous journey across America, talking about what it was like for all of them on what, to that point in time, was the highest grossing rock and roll tour in history. Well, we, we all have Rolling Stones stories. I mean, when they played here in Charlotte, we were so blasted uh, up in this private suite that I totally missed the concert. I mean, they, they said they played, but I, I was I was just drunk, man. I, I, I guess I heard them. <laughs> <laughs> a man after my own heart. I said that, man. We don't know what that means. Okay, so. <laughs> but you've you've got sixty hours of interviews. Now, here's the thing: a lot of our listeners, are, you know, they're into streaming and they're into the cloud and stuff like that. Do you have it on cassette or reel to reel? How are you preserving this? Well, you ask great questions, and 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 I'm I'm, I'm honored that you do. So, um, for all those years, the, these were done on cassette. And the cassettes were in the bathroom of my office, you should forgive me, in a box. And then when I started moving my stuff to this archive of mine at Northwestern University, they all went there. And in order for them to be used, um, they digitized them all. Uh, and then, you know, you can do amazing things now with improving sound quality. I mean, you know, there is a hill right here in the voices of those who were on the tour. And so you'll hear all this. You'll hear them talking. I think the only interview ever done with Ian Stewart, who was called Stu, the original piano player for the Stones, who became their roadie, who drove the entire tour by himself. Wow. I mean, there are all mini stories. Uh, Cynthia Sagittarius, this incredible hippie woman who I discovered outside the arena who hitchhiked by herself from one show to another. This is, you know, beyond deadhead stuff. She <laughs> didn't have any money. 
She didn't have any way of transportation. And I kind of said, maybe to Gary, you know, like, Gary, this is, and she called herself Cynthia Sagittarius. And after that, tell me if I'm wrong, Gary, they would leave leave a ticket for her at every arena. Wow. Wow. Kind of small story. And she would make it hundreds of miles in one day to get to the next show. (laughs) Hitching. (laughs) yeah but but did the rolling stones live by the radio rule don't eat the listener food (laughs) a question i can't answer gary (laughs) i don't think any of us ate during that eight weeks it was only what six weeks or eight weeks there was no eating to eat you know what i mean like you were on the plane there was food on a plane, but you know, you're right, Gary. I don't, I don't remember. I saw a lot of drinking and yeah, other activities. Yeah. But I don't remember having any food. Yeah, I, was, I lost 31 pounds on that tour. Holy moly. Wow. wow. It was the Rolling Stones diet. <laughs> well, <laughs> at the end of the tour, I will say this. If you want to see this, there's some footage. When we hit Madison Square Garden, they did two shows one day and then two more shows, I think four, three or four shows at the Garden, which was then, you know, it was the end of the end. And we were in New York. It was Mick's 29th birthday, the last night of the tour, an insane party. Bob Dylan was at the party at the Starlight Roof of the St. Regis Hotel. By that point in time, actually, he's being asked this question. Jagger is walking down the hallway to go into the dressing room and he's allowing Dick Cavett <laughs> who had a late night show to interview him. And Mick at this point is skin and bone. And Cabot says, well, and Cabot is like blown away. He's like so close to Mick. Yeah. You know? And he said, well, well, what do you weigh now? And Jagger <laughs> said, oh, 65 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't weigh much more by that point. you know. <laughs> Mick has always been that guy who, who he really is a down to earth everyday guy. Because the last time that he was here last year, he walked into one of Charlotte's uh, bars and people didn't even recognize him. And, and there's a an iconic shot of him standing outside at this bar and people are in their own little conversations and Mick is just there smiling. Hmm. Okay, Gary, you're not going to help me here. I don't, I don't have to express my own opinion. I can just quote the, the reigning expert on, on that subject. And as Keith once said of Mick, He's a nice bunch of guys. <laughs> <laughs> the Stones coming to America. One of the things that you put focus on on the podcast Stones Touring Party on iHeartRadio is the fact that it did redefine the American concert scene, didn't it? Oh, yes. Absolutely did redefine it. Uh, you know, the, we were talking about this earlier, the ticket prices it, it for those shows in 1972, the best seat in the house would cost you $6.50. And, and every stadium was sold out. The point is, Ahmed Erdogan, who founded Atlantic Records, and I also wrote his biography, uh, he crossed the stones over. Well, listen, they had just made Sticky Fingers. Sticky Fingers helped cross the stones over. It was huge. That record in Europe, everywhere you went, that record, there was an international, you know, smash. And it just captured the moment. You know, Exile now has become the masterpiece. But at the time they were touring, they didn't do that many songs from Exile. They played the catalog, and which is interesting. But they they now had been crossed over thanks to Ahmet and with them which they always did for black acts 
Stevie Wonder and Wonderlove opened, and that's that exposed him to a whole other audience. You know, he wasn't playing the Apollo only anymore. Um, they became the number one attraction in the world. They were no longer the Outlaws, the counterculture band, uh, Altamont. They were everybody wanted to see the Stones that summer. You, you you bring up the uh, uh, the stones in that way. I think one of the biggest stories that, that a lot of people still talk about is their, how they dealt with the Hell's Angels, and I, I, th- I thought that was a very interesting take on it. In the way that all I have ever had was a Rolling Stone story. Barry. Oh no, Bob! This is your bailiwick. Nineteen sixty nine. I was still a child. So, what, what is it you're trying to draw me into saying about the Hell's Angels? Basically, that that you know, a lot of people, you know, first of all, the Rolling Stones being you know, the Hell's Angels here. You either loved them or you hated them. And and I, I remember growing up, the Hell's Angels were like, oh my god. And then and then to uh-huh. see that these two big superpowers come together as one, it's like, oh my god. You know, it's two different oh my gods. Thank you. Okay, so I get the question, and the answer is they never came together. What? Sam Cutler, who just passed away in Australia, was managing the Stones on the 69 tour. He and Bill Graham, who I also wrote Bill's book with him, they hated, they got into an on stage in Oakland. The Stones were so late to start yep, the first yep, show. Yep. The kid standing outside the second show. It was Bill was horrified. Attacked Sam Cutler. The two of them were wrestling and punching one another under the piano during the show. Okay? <laughs> and, and so Cut, Cutler was certainly not going to... Mick wanted to do, you know, free concert. You know, wanted to look like the man of the people and do, be part of the... the uh, the mise-en-scene, as we say in Hollywood. what Capture the moment culturally. Sam Cutler organized it. Sam Cutler bought the Hells Angels $500 worth of beer. And they were nobody's idea of security. The concert was a disaster. And the fear was in 72 that the Hells Angels were going to kill Mick. Yes. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Wherever we went, there was this paranoia about they were going to shoot him on stage. They were going to attack him. We, we traveled America with two armed black detectives, ex, ex-Oakland policemen. Wow. You couldn't get on our floor unless, well, Gary, it was like we were secured, right? Sure, sure. You know, I was just thinking that, that uh, Bob's in, among those 60 hours of interviews. Somebody asked Jagger, was he frightened during this tour? And without hesitation, he admitted he was scared to death. Yep. Uh, I I recall the uh, the concert in uh, in uh, Montreal where there were uh, uh, substantial threats against the Stones and and the arena and the entire show that was about to take place because of the uh, separatist movement that was underway in in <laughs> Canada. And during that show. Somebody lit off a firecracker, oh, which God. is not an unusual thing to occur at a rock right. concert. But Jagger jumped as if he had been shot. And I, I was w- just looking at him right at that moment when that firecracker went off. And it was astounding to see how frightened and how instinctively he reacted to a loud noise like that for fear that, you know, that somebody was about to assassinate him. Wow. And actually, just so I get people to listen to the podcast, I'll be obvious here. He didn't (laughs) actually use the word scared to death. He said it in a little bit more explicit manner. (laughs) 
But you, you know what's great about this podcast on iHeartRadio is the fact that, you know, it's like when one time there, someone said, do you want to talk to Elton John or the tour manager? And I said, I want to talk to the tour manager. You guys are uh, giving us that real story that because you're, you're taking us behind the scenes and sharing the experience and not 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 giving me the same answer at, at every interview that you go to. Well, because the drama was so overwhelming and it involved so many people yeah. and everybody had their own thread and their own plot line. There was so much going on. Truman Capote joins the tour along with Jackie Kennedy's sister, Princess Lee Radziwill. Now you got this because Ahmed, you have this whole social aspect that is a, attached to the tour. It's it's kind of a movie. And that's what the podcast <laughs> is. It's this, you know, it's not exactly gone with the wind. I'm not going to say that, you know, but there's so much drama as Gary. Gary, talk tell him about getting arrested in Rhode Island. Okay? <laughs> yes, that, that was <laughs> we had just come from Canada and uh, scheduled to play Boston that night. And everybody was really tired. It'd been, a, you know, we'd been well into the tour and uh, uh, I think it was weather that that precipitated the necessity of landing in Rhode Island uh, uh, and and driving because the Boston airport for some reason was not accessible. So we landed in Rhode Island and when we got there, we had to clear through customs. A, uh, a makeshift customs was set up in an in a hangar uh, where the uh, plane landed. And as we were going through this, this kind of phony customs, a photographer <laughs> from the local newspaper showed up uh, very eager to start taking photos of the stones, and they were they were really tired and and not uh, uh, willing to, you know, agree to his requirements and things that he wanted to do. And so they, I, I asked him to to step aside that they weren't going to be available for for uh, photos. And he informed me that this was his right, and he was pushing Ooh. his way Ooh. in to take pictures of them and and a. Uh, a, a uh, an encounter of sorts occurred, and the Stones eventually ended up getting arrested. Uh, Keith and an encounter engendered, of course, by Keith Richards, right? <laughs> yes. Who was always who was arrested first, and then of course Mick stepping to his friend's defense, like Keith. Now he was arrested, and then Bobby, like then guys joined the group of those getting arrested. So tell them about Boston while these guys are in jail, Gary. Well, yes, I accompanied them to jail. By the way, as their PR guy, I thought it was my responsibility to protect them in that instance and when we got to jail uh, the, a, uh, the governor of uh, Rhode Island was called upon to intercede and 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 uh, um, facilitate their release and we were given a, uh, a police escort out of Rhode Island to Boston to make it in time for this concert now at the time this was going on in Rhode Island the uh, city of Boston was aflame uh, in the, uh, the the ghetto area of Boston was being uh, attacked. Wow. And and that, so that you have an arena that was filled with Stones fans uh, going crazy, waiting in anticipation for the Stones' arrival, not knowing why that they're, they're this being hours and hours of waiting. Hours and hours. Go ahead. Yeah. Yes, hours. And Chip Monk, who's the... Uh, uh, production designer uh, who's famous for, from his days at uh, 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 what's his yes yeah, it's assuring the crowd that the Stones will be there and the mayor of Boston comes on stage and informs the audience that he has to go and take care of this fire situation 
in, that with the, the city in flames and that he is going to remove the police and fire uh, <laughs> oh uh, from the, the arena. The transport has been shut down at this point. Yeah, and he's, and he's promising that, that the stones will be there, but he, he gets from them the assurance that they will behave themselves. And if they do, <laughs> the, he will deliver the stones. And so he leaves and we are now under uh, uh, driving madly to to get to Boston to get, do this concert under the, with a, a police escort, uh, sirens wailing, and and as we approach the city of Boston, we can see that the city is in oh flames. The stones are thinking that it's because of them that the city <laughs> is being burned down. <laughs> well, it arrived around midnight, I think it was, and they and. The troopers that they were as exhausted as they were they pulled it together and gave uh, the the fans that waited patiently not so patiently a terrific show wow in, in listening to the podcast stone's touring party the one thing that i got out of it was it almost feels like a confession but at the same time it's an adventure and i think i'm, I'm so glued to it because it's like oh my god i i feel like i'm right there with you well, good. That, that was the intention. I'm glad you you uh, you it, you got that from this. It's it's also the genius manner in which it was edited together, so that you know you hear all these people, you hear all these voices. They go back and forth. It's again not just Gary and I telling stories, yeah. but it really to me feels like a movie, and the best kind of movie where you have to and you will see it in your mind because it's so graphic and so complete in terms of what was happening backstage, on stage, off stage. It's, you know, listen, I'm not talking about what Gary and I did here. I'm talking about the end result, which I, which both Gary and I feel is like, we're very proud of this, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Yes, the, the editing is really, truly a sensational. As, as Bob says, it's, it's like watching a movie or just listening to a movie, but you absolutely do feel like you're there. There's an edginess to this thing, too, that's uh, really wonderful. Can you imagine if you would have had podcast technology in 1972, how you could have put this up immediately? Well, yeah. no, 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 <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, dude, it, the, the book I wrote wasn't published until a year after the tour. Yeah. That's how long everything took back then. And I hate to be the guy who informs the world of this. The collective span of attention was a lot longer back then. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And the concept of instant gratification. I mean, the fact that, you know, uh, wine gets better when you age it. Yeah. Okay. You know, if you wanted to go to a Stones show during the 1972 tour, you didn't go on the internet and, and <laughs> what? No, you, know, you got in line and you waited all day yep. to get your tickets. Yep. You know, and, uh, can I can I put it this way? Is eh, it's the old guy is talking? You had to work harder. You had to show up. You had to really want it. You know what I mean? You couldn't watch it in the house, man. You had to be in the arena, and there were no audio, no video projection screens. They had no backup singers. You got to see the Stones playing rock and roll at the peak of their ability. That's what I could say, and it was astonishing. And the music is what made it all happen. Okay. They also just because in throwing this in, um, they used a smaller stage. You remember oh. this, Gary? Mm -hmm. And Keith, well, for for three songs, Keith and Mick and Mick Taylor, a great musician, all three playing acoustic guitars, would do uh, "Sweet Virginia," 
and would do the Robert Johnson's uh, blues song, the red light on behind that one and one other. And again, here's the deal about having gone to these shows my whole life, loving the music. These were 18,000 seat arenas, hockey arenas. When these three guys sat on stage and Mick singing and playing, the acoustic playing was amazing. You could hear a pin drop. Wow. Dead quiet. That's how good they were. Okay. Wow, wow. And this is every bit the reason why I feel like this is a blessed day because, I mean, to, to get the opportunity to talk with you guys today is just amazing. you got to come back to the show anytime in the future. The door is always going to be open for you. Uh, thank you, Errol. That's very sweet, man. Thank yeah, you. Really very kind of you. Will you guys be brilliant today, okay? <laughs> That's hard. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I'll settle for average. There you we'll go. We'll do our best. <laughs> <All right. laughs>